0: Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And since it is Halloween season when we are recording this episode, we are honoring, celebrating the villainess.
1: Yes, the bad girl of pop culture and fairy tales and comic books the evil stepmother yes the giant octopus with really cool (laughs) hair let's be
0: honest ursula's hair is so on trend right now
1: we've gotta admit though or acknowledge that ursula was based on divine the drag queen oh yeah hence big beautiful ursula with her big beautiful hair no wonder she's so fabulous i know and and evil. <laughs> true, true. Yes.
0: <laughs> um yeah, the post that inspired this episode was over at com, and it was titled In Defense of Villainesses, basically arguing that lady villains do not get their proper dues in pop culture. Sure, they're brushed off as just mad Bitter, resentful old women. Or they just aren't as visible or as... Uh, Fleshed out. Yeah, as male villains are. And in fact, there was some villainous news <laughs> recently uh, that kind of gets to the heart of... The marketing machine behind villains and maybe one reason why we don't see more women villains.
1: Yeah. So when you search for anything on the Google about lady villains, villainesses, whatever. One of the only things that comes up on page one is the fact that the original Iron Man 3 villain was gender swapped right before production and and not in a good way. If you've if you've seen the movie, you know that the villain was supposed to be a woman and ended up not being a woman anymore. Why did they do that? Well, I'll tell you. Please do. So in the original script, the plan was to have this lady villain, but a memo came down to the filmmakers saying, nope, don't do a lady villain. A female villain toy will not sell as well. And that kind of blows my mind. I, I, maybe I'm naive, but I didn't realize <laughs> that like pre-production, not even After the fact, it's one thing to like market something differently, but I didn't realize that the making of a film could be influenced by the toy making machine. Oh, yeah. It's all about that money, honey. I know. And so director Shane Black was like, guys, 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 calm down. The president of Marvel Studios had nothing to do with this because everybody was like, are you serious? And they were trying to find out who to blame, basically. And... He said that we had to change the entire script because of toy making. It was the marketing machine. It was the higher ups at the studio. It was not the director or the head of Marvel. Well,
0: I wonder if that also has to do with them uh, presuming that the audience for Iron Man is going to skew male. So maybe you'll have more boys who are going to be interested in buying Iron Man related toys compared to girls
1: and the thinking goes that boys would be less likely to buy a girl villain. Sure. Or that parents would be less likely to buy it for their son. Yeah, maybe, but I would just think like, and I'm, maybe I'm projecting, I don't know, but I would just think that a villain is a villain is a villain. And if it's a woman like that just seems really fun too. I imagine she has like dark lipstick and dark hair and, and, Cool accessories and oh, see, I guess I am a girl though. Well, see, th- that gets to what uh, it
0: seems to be the two categories of female villain that you have in pop culture usually. She's either kind of vampy and mm-hmm. e- a seductress, mm-hmm. but also evil, of course. Sure. Uh, she's like uh, evil woman in that ELO song, <laughs> or she <laughs> is older and undesirable by virtue of her,
1: like, lack of sexiness. Right. She's the anti-seductress. She's the old hag with the apple, the poison apple.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> it's still a similar pattern that you see with female protagonists where a lot of times they are defined by their relation to men mm-hmm. and their sexual attractiveness.
1: And with with films, too— cartoon or live action you know you have to provide some degree of coding so that the audience sort of knows what to expect from that character and so making her um you know a brunette uh you know she maybe she's wearing all black and she's super sexy like that codes as like the evil vamp villain just the same way that Painting her as a witch, an old hag, is like oh, this signals to me that I need to watch out for her and not trust her.
0: Well, and what you're describing, especially with the the woman dressed in all black, like a Donna Karen <laughs> outfit from head to toe, is just reminding me of Angelica Houston in The Witches. Oh yeah, oh, just watch that. So flawless. Yeah, she is that woman. She's so stylish. She's mm-hmm. stunning. And then. Of course, on the inside, who she really is, is this terrifying, haggard witch who looks like the Sanderson sisters.
1: Which I, in Hocus Pocus. I just watched Hocus Pocus last night.
0: Oh my gosh, Caroline, I watched Hocus Pocus this past weekend too. Really? Okay. Can we talk hocus pocus for a second? For sure. And this will, listeners, tie back into our conversation on villains because they are like the archetypal, like evil
1: crone. Yeah, and they've got in that group of three sisters, they have it all, right? Oh, yeah. They've got Bette Midler's kind of – she's not the old hag in terms of like the Snow White evil witch with the poison apple – but she is still made to look with the buck teeth that are yellow and the crazy red curly hair. She's made to look a little more old and haggard compared to her sisters. Right, and she's the most powerful too. Correct. And then you've got Kathy and Jimmy, who she's—they make her do this weird, like, crooked thing with her mouth. Yeah, she kind of talks out of the side of her mouth. They give her a speech impediment. Yeah, and she, yeah, she is the dumber. Well, she's dumber than uh, Winifred. But then you've got Sarah Jessica Parker's Sarah, who she is the vamp. She's the skinny blonde with the big boobs coming out over her dress. And she is super air and jumps around and claps all the time and says, amuck, amuck, amuck. And she really wants to make out with any
0: male who enters their premises. Correct. Um, so <laughs> I got to tell you that I loved the witches, the three witches. Mm-hmm. Could have watched them. All night long. Yeah. But I stopped watching Hocus Pocus. Couldn't get through it. Y'all, this was my first time. Oh, wait, this weekend? <laughs> yes. Oh. At 31 years old, this was my very first viewing of Hocus Pocus. <laughs> and uh, I couldn't finish it because that, like, poor man's Jonathan Taylor Thomas <laughs> kid Was just the worst because it starts off with him just lusting after, uh, like the girl who looks like a young Hillary Swank. Right. And it's like weirdly, like overtly sexual Mm -hmm. and he doesn't listen to anyone. And you know what? During this election season, when we've had a man who does not listen to women (laughs) mucking a lot of stuff up, I was like, I can't do this. I can't watch you. So where, where did you stop? uh the witches had come back and i don't know like uh like fake jtt had just done something else foolish and i was like i can't thor birch you're perfect yeah all the witches you're perfect even young hillary swank i think you have a horrible taste in middle school boys but yeah. didn't we all mm-hmm. um <laughs> But I was like, why? Why does it have to be centered around this kid? Um, also, this is a cautionary tale of waiting to watch children's <laughs> movies when you are a 31 year old professional feminist.
1: Yeah, I definitely have the benefit of the nostalgia factor <laughs> having watched it growing up. But it was funny watching it this time around. I hadn't seen it in a couple of years that I definitely was like, why Why does it have to center on this guy? Why can't it center on Hilary Swank or, or Thora, Thora Birch? Birch? Yeah, who's perfect. Well, because by the end of the movie, by the very end, which you didn't get to, what's weird about it is that it does feel like it is centered around her. Basically, like the ending shot is brother and sister, like, hugging or whatever. But it's all about Thora Birch saying goodbye to these two character, two of the characters in the movie. And it, I wanted to be like, what? This, this just should have been the movie. Let the two girls, who are clearly smarter than this boy, run the show. Well,
0: and getting back to our convo on villainesses, or villains, uh, I love that the witches, the Sanderson sisters, are just purely evil and have no qualms about it whatsoever. Yeah. You know, they (laughs) there's that moment early in the film where they they get some some youthfulness back and are restored to their their younger looking selves. Mm -hmm. Um, So you have like a touch of uh stereotypical like female vanity going on. But then they're they're so powerful and terrifying and uh they love it. And also I love that Bette Midler, um despite her extreme buck teeth and wild
1: hair, I mean, she thinks she looks phenomenal. Yeah. <laughs> I know they all do. And they're they are. They're so wonderful. And I love how funny that Midler is allowed to be in that movie. How funny Winifred is allowed to be that she's not entirely one dimensional.
0: But let's talk about their fashion, because this leads us into something that is pretty consistent across pop cultural villains who happen to be women. So they've got some good style. Yeah.
1: So I love that the Sanderson sisters, they do have these like flowing gowns and capes. Um, and, you know, you mentioned Angelica Houston in Witches. She is fabulous with her lob, her long bob, uh, her, you know, crazy good makeup. It was the 80s. Um, and her, she's got this tight off-the-shoulder black dress which, when she turns into the ghoulish version of herself, she's still wearing a gorgeous off-the-shoulder black dress. Uh, I-, I do love that that Sarah Gailey over at Tor.com pointed this out, as did Lucy Hutchings when she wrote about villainous fashion for Vogue UK. Uh, what were some of her favorites? So I think one of the main ones that is cited across all of these listicle sites has to be Maleficent, both the cartoon version and Angelina Jolie's version of Maleficent. And of course, Maleficent is the witchy evil villain from Sleeping Beauty. Yeah, she she has that amazing headpiece. Yeah, she has that amazing headpiece. It's so elegant, you know, for being like, Horn shaped and whatever. Um, and other villains with amazing accessories, like you've got to think of L. Driver's eye patch. She's uh Daryl Hannah in Kill Bill. Cersei's queenly armor. So Cersei finally, spoiler, Cersei in Game of Thrones finally gets to be on the throne. Who knows how long she'll be there? But to indicate that she has transitioned from just being like run-of-the-mill evil queen into like run-of-the-mill. Super evil, super powerful queen. She's wearing all black with her, an all black gown, complete with like super badass looking armor on her shoulders. Yeah. Well, and that reminds
0: me of, uh, when a couple seasons back now where, Sansa is off with Littlefinger and I start worrying that she's about to go to the dark side yeah. because she starts wearing this intense black gown that has uh
1: those like feather epaulets. Yes. Oh, so badass. Yeah. Way to go wardrobe department. Indeed. But I mean, those, those killer wardrobes, I mean, they might be wearing robes like Maleficent or Oren Ishii also from Kill Bill. They might have fabulous coats depending on how you view fur. <laughs> if you look at Cruella DeVille or Miranda Priestley from Devil Wears Prada, she's kind of the villain of that movie. Obviously that's not a comic book movie or anything right, like that. Right. And obviously she's supposed to be Anna Wintour. <laughs> right. So she must be well dressed. But she's a villain. For sure in that movie, and she has fabulous coats. Uh, and one very common wardrobe choice, particularly when it comes to comic book and superhero movies, is the cat suit. And so not only obviously do you have Catwoman wearing the cat suit, even though one might argue that Catwoman is really more of an anti-hero than a villain. Let's, let's go back, right? Ghostbusters number one, Zool, right? Even though Zool is not technically a woman, Zool can take whatever form He or she wants, when Zul shows up on top of Sigourney Weaver's building, Zul is dressed as, like, the white version of Grace Jones, basically. Anyway, you've also got Nebula in Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, and Harley Quinn, not in the latest live action movie, but in the comics, she's wearing kind of like a Joker type catsuit. Well, and then there's also Poison Ivy, who wears a catsuit. Made of ivy?
0: Yes. But this is, this is what I'm getting at though, where we have like the more mature woman who might be dressed all in black, she might be chic, but she's probably not outright sexy. Mm -hmm. And then you have the catsuit villains. Who are very sexualized.
1: Yeah. I mean, they all like, it is fun to look at them. And I'm sure it's fun to create them. They have fabulous, crazy hair. Like their hair is allowed to be the Ursula swoop or Zool's flat top. Or if you're going with like a woman who is putting on femininity to describe, to disguise her evilness, you've got Amy from Gone Girl who has like the most perfect, fabulous, Blonde, long, luscious hair ever. She just puts on that luscious hair. (laughs) And then. Just like Lego hair, just puts it on in the morning. And bamboozles Ben Affleck. That's right. And, you know, tied in with the whole, like, having fun with appearance thing is the fact that a villain, like I was saying, a villainess is allowed to look different. She's allowed to have these different physical attributes than just, like, the perfect Disney princess. Well, because she's
0: loud. I mean, this reminds me of our episode on curly hair, where a lot of times you see coded in movies, if you have sort of a life montage where suddenly a, a female character kind of like gets her act together, mm-hmm. she's going to go from having curly hair to straight hair. right? Or vice versa. Like when um, uh, on Scandal, for instance, whenever we see Olivia Pope um like kind of teetering on the edge of sanity or she is off on a deserted island like no longer yeah Caroline's squinty but they're fans of scandal know what i'm talking about um when uh when she's not her put together olivia pope um self she usually has Curly hair.
1: Interesting. See, but it's coding. It's, it's signaling to the audience that like, even if you're not literally thinking like, oh, she has really curly hair here versus straight and put together, um, it's still signaling to you that something's different
0: because it's all, it all kind of boils down to what we associate with acceptable femininity which is uh, modest. You're not going to wear a bold red lip like mm-hmm. Maleficent. You're not going to wear a gaudy fur coat like Cruella. Yeah. And <laughs> you could see this as both a pro and a con, mm-hmm. but you are also likelier with uh, villains, female villains in pop culture for her to not necessarily be white in the same way as so many female protagonists are.
1: Yeah, okay, so yes, that like virginal white femininity that is like the crux of so many protagonists in these like fairy tales or in these comic book stories, just the same way that the villainess is coded as evil or crazy by the way her hair is or her makeup or her clothes. You know, the, the protagonist, the fairy tale heroine is so often just like the traditional feminine that we think of the traditional white feminine that we think of. Um, but you can have plenty of different types of villains in comic book movies, in fairy tales, uh, You've got Varrett Din, aka Fatality. She's a comic book villain with DC Comics. You've also got Zenzi. She's a new villain, actually, for the 2016 Black Panther comic series by Tanahasi Coates. Um, and if you move out of the comic book realm, too, I mean, just look at Kill Bill by itself. You've got Gogo Yubari, Oren Ishii, and Vernita Green all trying to kill. Uh, Uma Thurman's character. Or if you go to Batman, you have my favorite
0: villain of all, who is Catwoman, played by Eartha Kitt. Ooh, yeah. Oh, she's perfect. And then you later have uh, Halle Berry's Catwoman. And, I mean, you, earlier you described, like, the, quote-unquote, like, traditional white femininity. Um, <laughs> I don't know if it's so much traditional as it is Racist, ultimately,
1: oh, I mean, yes, and I mean traditional in terms of how that protagonist is shown on screen typically. right right um because i I feel like with with
0: exceptions, obviously to things like uh zenzi in Black panther and and some of these other characters um but to me, the uh the chance that these villains have. Differently colored skin, let's say, Mm -hmm. um, does say a lot about how we perceive women of color, because also consider how uh, black women in particular historically have been so framed as Jezebels Mm -hmm. and sirens and seductresses. And I would imagine that there is, that 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 feeds into some of these, uh, especially older school villains.
1: Yeah, that no wonder it's more acceptable to have women of color of some sort. Right, because they're already deviant by virtue of them not being white. Right, exactly. And I think that ties into the next point of why it is so common slash acceptable to have a villain who plays on the whole vamp trope, who is that sexy, made up, you know, busty Evil woman because even if she's playing on her sexuality and toying with men and taking advantage, it's like you can't – you can't hate her for it. That's her power because she's evil. So it's okay for a woman to display outright sexuality if she's evil and will be defeated in the end. Well, and then – by
0: by that logic, then, doesn't that mean that a woman – doesn't that suggest, then, that a woman who uh, is open with her sexuality and wields it in such a way that that is the evil thing about her? Sure, exactly. You know?
1: Yeah, I know. And And some of my – Favorite villainesses do do this. I mean, but it's an old trope. Oh yeah, it's that's... so easy to rely on. Like, right. okay, so one of my favorites is, uh, in one of my favorite movies to watch around Halloween, which is the 1999 Sleepy Hollow with Johnny Depp. Love it. Love it. It's one of my favorite movies. And Miranda Richardson's Lady Van Tassel, uh, in that movie is so freaking brilliant. She gets to be beautiful. Uh, she gets to be glamorous, right? She wears these big gowns. Even when she's mid, like, crazy evil woman and her hair's coming out of her updo, she still looks, like, so fabulous and glamorous when she's totally losing touch with reality. Um, and in all of this evil stuff she's doing and controlling the Headless Horseman, the way that she picks her victims and seduces them and everything, like, she... Tempts them with her sexuality and her beauty and it's so, she's such a fun villain to watch. This is also reminding
0: me of a movie I was watching last night also for the first time. Y'all, I've really been trying <laughs> to catch up on pop culture from like way back. I was watching Casino and Sharon Stone, who mm-hmm. plays Robert De Niro's wife, hustler turned wife, is such an embodiment of the vampy villain because, you know, from the first moment you see her on screen that she is going to be his downfall because she is so captivating mm-hmm. in her whole presentation. Of course, she's gorgeous, but also in how they um, outfit her as just this very glamorous, but ultimately money hungry and self-destructive um like Vegas queen.
1: Well, yeah, because how could beauty and sexuality coexist with a woman who doesn't implode? Well,
0: beauty, sexuality and ambition. Oh, yeah. I mean, granted, her ambition was just to be like obnoxiously wealthy. Um, But nonetheless, (laughs) as we're going to get into that, I mean, a lot of these villains are ambitious. Yeah. You know, (laughs) not to be a villain apologist.
1: (laughs) They leaned in.
0: <laughs> they really did. <laughs> Ursula, who, who leans in farther than Ursula? Come on. She's <laughs> stealing people's voices. <laughs>
1: she's, she's got pet eels. Um, yeah, so this whole beauty thing and femininity is something that uh, Shannon Austins wrote about in Batman's Female Foes, which appeared in the Journal of Popular Culture back in April 2015. And she quotes author Mary J. Russo talking about how often in these stories where the woman villain is powerful and also beautiful, that she uses her femininity as a mask and to put on femininity with a vengeance, she writes, suggests the power of taking it off and purposely disguising themselves in this way and acting feminine to gain certain ends, thus allows them more power because they can remove this mask at times convenient for them, revealing the so-called monster's Underneath, And I, I, you know, I'd love to talk with you more about this and get your opinion. But to me, it just reminded me of every time on the Internet, a man criticizes a woman for wearing makeup. Uh, but but, you know, I mean, quite literally, that's what Angelica Houston's witch villain does in witches. She puts on the mask of a beautiful, statuesque, distinguished, fashionable woman, and then takes it off. And she's the haggard, disgusting witch monster underneath.
0: Right. Which I mean, talking about <laughs> rude dudes on the Internet, that uh, that reminds me of uh, the whole thing of makeup being deceptive. Correct.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, a villain, no matter male, female, old, young, whatever, deceit is probably part of that. Part of the storyline is that you need to deceive the hero or the heroine. And so In this way that Austin and Russo are talking about, femininity is like a super dangerous disguise because look at Poison Ivy, you know, she's beautiful, you know, and she'll tempt you with that beauty. And then her kisses are fatal. She will kiss you and it will kill you. Yeah, I am highly allergic to poison ivy. Oh, me too. I can look at that stuff. Oh, God. I had to, like, I got it so bad a couple years ago. I had to take steroids for it and I just lost my freaking mind. I was rage crying all the time. So I don't take steroids anymore. But anyway,
0: (laughs) and we also do not need to go around kissing Uma Thurman, apparently. Yeah,
1: no, don't do that.
0: But if we look at how a lot of times especially with more traditional fairy tales like Grimm's fairy tales and a lot of the Disney princess plot lines you have these villains who are older and there <laughs> there's like this catch 22 of those kinds of fairy tales obviously rewarding feminine youth correct yeah fertility and beauty mm-hmm. But at the same time, maligning these older women who have lost that and who are trying, doing everything that they can to get it back because they realize that that's the only way that society will value them. And so we're like shaking a finger at them. But at the same time, we are upholding the very thing that is allegedly making them evil.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. I know. And and we're so scared. We're so scared of... Elderly women, especially if they are elderly and alone. It'd be one thing if it was an old woman and she's married, because then she's she's just a grandmother. She's, a, she's gonna make cookies. It's, you know, that's how she would be characterized in, in a story. She would not be the villain if she were married or paired with a man in some sort. And uh there was this great NPR article that talked to a couple of academics and folklorists about the appearance uh and the presence of these older women in folk tales. And they talked to Ivory Coast writer Veronique Tajo, who said that the old witch who destroys people's souls is a super common African folklore figure. And she says uh, she's usually a solitary woman. She's already marginal. She's angry at something, at life or whatever. And she will eat people's souls in the sense that she's going to possess people. And then they die a terrible death. There's something scary about a woman who does not possess that youth. And that beauty um, and that traditional femininity and who's also alone, like, oh, my God, where did all the norms go? Oh, and she's like a
0: nag. You mm-hmm. know, if we if we have to deal with her, if we have to hear her complain about anything, we don't like it. And it's certainly not unique. To African folklore. I mean, if we look more at uh, like Western history and some of the mythology that we've built up around, say, cat ladies and the <laughs> yeah. Salem witch trials. And um, also, if we go even farther back to medieval times, when old women living by themselves were so reviled um, that if they were found to be uh, complaining too much and too loudly, they could be punished by having to wear what was called a scold's bridle, which was literally like a, a muzzle that they would have to wear to shut them up.
1: Yeah, people didn't want to see or hear elderly women on their own. Gosh, like we don't want the burden. So children are to be seen and not heard. Old ladies, we don't want to hear from
0: you. When when can we talk? That's why we have a podcast, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I think we're in
1: that sweet spot
0: of people still allowing us to talk. Yeah, yeah. We're still we're still fertile as far as we know, so we can keep making podcasts.
1: Oh thank God. Well, Harvard folklore and mythology professor Maria Tatar could be Tater. Tater tot. Maria Tater Tot. Maria Tater Tot, I like that. Um I'm sorry. Uh she talks about how the powerful old witch woman in mythology is the one who can work magic and transform. In other words, hello, what have we just been talking about? In other words, she can exert power and deceive. And there's like nothing worse than an old woman deceiving you with something. It's why people get so upset when women wear makeup. It's why, you know, people criticize older women for getting plastic surgery that's visible. It's like, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to deceive us about how old you are? You should go Live in a hut in the woods and bake children. Are you trying to
0: avoid being rendered invisible
1: <laughs> by our sexist and ageist society? How dare you? What are you thinking? Um And, you know, uh, this Harvard professor points out something that I hadn't even thought about, which is the transformation sequence that's in some of these Disney movies that we've talked about. Uh, she says, uh, I always looked to the Disney film Snow White. And that charismatic, wicked queen who's down in the cellar with her chemistry set. There's a sequence in which she turns from a beautiful, charismatic, wicked queen into an old hag. And then, of course, she points out, I think there's a scene that's probably more frightening for adults than children because it compresses the aging process in about 20 seconds. Um, but it also reminded me of the scene in Game of Thrones where Melisandra takes off her magic necklace at the end of the night And transforms from this beautiful, seductive, redheaded witch into this ancient old woman who's hunched over and sagging and her hair is falling out. And I mean, I I, like, hello, tropey trope-ness of displaying just how powerful and evil someone is by how they deceive you with their appearance and their femininity.
0: Right, because... If she weren't disguised as that sexy witch and just looked like an old crone, no one would listen to her. Right. But, but there are really fun ways that these villains get to flout a lot of feminine conventions and we're going to get into that when we come right back from a quick break. Now Caroline, as soon as I said feminine convention, <laughs> I felt like I should <laughs> distinguish that from The Witch Convention in The Witches <laughs> starring Angelica Houston, which is sort of a feminine convention if you think about it.
1: Yeah, yeah, totally feminine convention, not feminine norms per se. Exactly. But definitely a feminine convention. They they do eat children. Or no, they turn them into mice. They don't eat them. Yeah. Yeah. So that's fine. Um, But I do think it's fun. I mean, you know, I think it's fun to look at villains and talk about them because they do flout so many conventions. And we've already talked about, you know, the stereotypical image, you know, they flout traditional femininity as it's as it tends to be presented to us on screen. Um, But because of a lot of that flouting, all of this flouting Mm -hmm. going on, they can make a lot of people nervous, too.
0: Well, and one of the reasons behind that some people have suggested is because i r l outside of Grimm's fairy tale land, we don't really understand female criminality all that much it's It's still kind of hard for us to wrap our heads around it.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of assumptions and this is coming from Brenda Russell who wrote Perceptions of Female Offenders. According to Russell's research and the research of others, we do tend to think of female criminals as an anomaly. Like it's weird, something must have happened, and we tend to view them either as victims who were acting in self-defense or they were under the control of others like oh, well She must have been, like, one of Manson's women. She must have been told what to do and duped into being so evil and unnurturing. Or they are crazy criminal deviants whose actions strayed from typically female behavior. Like, she does have to be some comic book superhero villain. Like, I can't imagine a woman who's, like, a run-of-the-mill to (laughs) maniac. Basically, you're run-of-the-mill, average, everyday klepto. Uh, she's just got sticky fingers. It's just Winona Ryder. <laughs> oh, Hashtag oh, 90s jokes. Oh, love Winona. Love you. Um But then, of course, there's the thing, Kristen, that you mentioned earlier, which is tied into this as well, that, like, oh, none of this is normal for a woman to do, to be a criminal. But when it comes to women of color who commit crimes, we tend to be less sympathetic because it's like, oh, well, no, she's, that's just. To be expected from a black woman because they're unchaste and untrustworthy. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's a lot of, uh, it's, it's a hot mess really when you start unpacking it. Yeah. Views of what women are capable of or not capable of are so inextricably tied up with issues of race and class as well.
0: And speaking to that, for listeners who want to learn more, we did a whole episode on kleptomania, um, which speak a lot to uh, race and class. So definitely go back in our massive archive and dig that one up because it's a good episode. Uh, but of course, too, you have a lot of female villains who symbolize what we repress. And that immediately makes me think of Carrie's mom.
1: Yahoo! Yeah, what, what does she Spielberg's call it Dirty Carrie. pillows?
0: Yes, your your breasts are dirty pillows. Yeah. And she's terrified of Carrie getting her period because that means that she's then sexually mature. Fears about female sexuality. Yeah. I mean, is
1: that really like at the heart of female villainy? Is sex panic? It's, I mean, it, it seems like it. And well, and the thing about that too is like, okay, let's think back to, to older, older tropes, fairy tales, folklore, and you've either got that temptress, villain, witch type lady, or you've got the old hag. And the more those stories are repeated, the more they've become deeply ingrained into our collective subconscious, basically. And so when we, I say we, like I'm a screenwriter, when we create new stories, What are we doing but reaching back into what we think of in terms of what a female villain looks like? And frequently that goes all the way back to sexy witches, basically.
0: Or I would argue that it goes all the way back to... The Garden of Eden. Oh snap! And Eve, while original sin. Yeah, it might seem like a stretch to call Eve a villain. No, it totally works. Yeah, I mean, she's she is, uh, you know, lured into this by the snake, yeah. Satan in the form of the snake. But nonetheless, she deceives Adam. Yeah, you've got deceit.
1: You've got a naked lady. You got long hair. Don't care. Mm, and we know what. Uh, you got some dirty pillows because you know. know they weren't wearing clothes. Well, you know what Hippocrates thought of long hair?
0: That it was full of semen. That's right. That is a fact. That is a fact, (laughs) listeners.
1: Yeah, that goes back to a couple episodes now that we've done. We just love talking about Hippocrates and hair. It's my favorite Hippocrates fact, for sure. Uh, But in terms of repression, uh, Shyla Fairfax over at Kern blog in June of 2014 cited film theorist Robin Wood uh, in looking at horror cinemas in particular, quote, return of the repressed tool. Uh, Wood said that monsters are manifestations of our tendency to enforce surplus repression within our communities, ensuring we're all monogamous, heterosexual, bourgeois, patriarchal capitalists. Whew. All right. So <laughs> translate, please. Um, basically, as Wood explains in this theory, women are a counterpoint to male domination. They are therefore a threat to patriarchal society. And so men project their repressed femininity, which they hate because it's not powerful and it goes against patriarchal structure. They project all of that onto women. And when a woman rises up in power, so when that femininity returns to face them, uh, that female character is clearly a monster who must be subdued. And so when you look at all of this horror film stuff a female villain then is often the horror trope combo of the uh, return of the repressed tool female victimization and punishing women who attempt to assume power and the whole female victimization thing it's because so often with these bad girls these female villains her motivation is so often revenge yeah, I mean, and
0: revenge for <laughs> social rejection sometimes. I mean, you do have in the Judy Garland Wizard of Oz, mm-hmm. for instance, you, you do have the Wicked Witch of the West who goes after her because, uh, she thinks that, um, Dorothy has killed her sister. So that makes sense. You sure. know, she wants to avenge her sister's death. But as Elena Doctorman over at Time Magazine pointed out not too long ago, one thing that a lot of uh, female Disney villains have in common is revenge for just straight up social rejection. Yeah. So I didn't realize that Ursula gets mad at the beginning and uh, targets Ariel because she sees Ariel leaving for a party. And she's just bummed out that she's no longer invited to those kinds of events. I
1: didn't remember that at all. Similarly,
0: Cinderella you have uh, the evil stepmother and stepsisters who are terrified that old Cindy is going to outshine them at the party. Yeah. Um, in the animated Sleeping Beauty, Maleficent is upset that she
1: wasn't invited to Aurora's christening. Oh, right. Well, but in the live action, Maleficent with Angelina Jolie, her backstory is that she got her heart broken by some man, and now, like, anyone who experiences love or whatever is just too gross, and she's got to, you know, hurt them or whatever. Yeah, that was a disappointing choice. Yeah, I mean, think of all of the crazy, weird backstories. You're literally recreating a fairy tale in whatever way you want, and, like, that's what you go go for. Well, and Dr. Man points out that,
0: meanwhile, you have male villains who tend to be allowed in in the Disney Canon, tend to be more allowed to just be like evil for the sake of uh, wanting to cement power. So with Scar in the Lion King and Jafar in Aladdin, they just want to be king. Yeah, that's also a song I
1: will not sing it. <laughs> <laughs> oh come on. Um, but for some of the same reasons that these female villains and these tropes make people nervous, uh, whether it's in real life according to researchers <laughs> or just, uh, whether she's scaring people in the film. Uh, yeah, there's plenty of reasons to like her. Oh yeah. You know, she's fun. She's fierce. She wears a bold lip. Oh yeah. No, seriously. Love it. Uh, She's unapologetically power hungry. She doesn't have to just be spunky and rely on the hero to get her where she needs to be. She tends to be brilliant, if not a mad scientist type. She's unpredictable. She's independent. Uh, her storyline, her uh, reason for being doesn't have to rely or revolve around a man. It can have something totally different. I mean, frequently it does involve a man to some extent, but it doesn't have to.
0: Well, with a lot of the social rejection lines, though, it's more uh, anger over competition with other women, which is also an interesting twist to consider.
1: Yeah. And typically the thing with these lady villains, whether it's live action, cartoon, folklore, whatever, she's typically not afraid to go after what she wants at any cost. Typically that involves killing someone. <laughs> Yeah. Granted, her motives are questionable. Sure. But these women are often ambitious. Yeah. So someone who maybe is not a villain, but is a fabulous antihero who I think encapsulates a lot of what we're talking about is Sigourney Weaver's character in Working Girl. Right. Super ambitious, deceitful, beautiful, uh, you know, petty. She's like all of these complicated things wrapped up in A shoulder padded businesswoman package. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, and I mean, all of the villains that we've cited by name all have that massive internal drive. You know, Nebula is going to frickin' kill. Cersei's going to kill. Zul is going to kill. They're all going to kill. Cruella's going to kill puppies. Like, all of these women are driven to accomplish something, and usually it's killing. (laughs) Killing in order to get something that they want. And
0: sometimes, though, they will team up with other women.
1: Yeah. Okay. So this goes back to that Shannon Austin Batman paper that we cited earlier. She talks a lot, and I didn't realize there was this much to talk about. Austin proved me wrong. She talks a lot about the relationship between Harley Quinn and Poison Ivy. And I was not aware of this. I basically only know anything about Batman from what I've seen in the movies, the live action movies. Mine's more Adam West based. So yours is probably even more accurate. <laughs> I don't know about that. Um, but so Harley Quinn, who it is worth noting, her entire character, her persona is in reaction to a man. So she meets and sort of falls in love with the Joker and he manipulates her into becoming this villain for him or with him. Um, but anytime she starts to act up and, and try to kill someone on her own, he basically smacks her down and is like, no, I want to do that. You don't get to make decisions about murder. You don't get to kill people f- for me. Yeah. And so, you know, there's all of this stuff that's lady villains and Batman in reaction to men. But at one point, Harley Quinn is almost killed, but Poison Ivy saves her. Poison Ivy, the woman with lethal kisses who's dressed in Poison Ivy, which sounds terrible. Um And as Austin points out, it's these women's closeness that gives her her strength back, not the stereotypical, like, cattiness and fighting that makes them weaker. And so she says that this cements the almost terrifying idea that While a woman with power is dangerous, women helping women achieve power is an even more serious threat. Poison Ivy and Harley Quinn are always running around together, helping each other, even when they're in a fight. Well, and talking about Harley Quinn, of course, makes me think of Suicide Squad, Mm -hmm.
0: which I did not see because I'll never be able to get those two hours of my life back if I do. No. But the one bright spot critics said in the movie uh, is Harley Quinn and she might get her own spin-off movie etc so i am curious from listeners who are in the know mm-hmm. what they think about her portrayal in that film because more broadly i would be curious um to see whether and how the dynamics and motivations of female villains changes at all in more ensemble Roles mm. where they are usually the only female villain in the room surrounded by their, their dude villain friends. Um, or they might be one of two. Uh, but I'm, I'm just curious from, from listeners if that changes, changes things at all or if, uh, they're still just kind of the same, but hanging out with batty
1: friends. Yeah. And you know, we've talked a lot about, ambition and female power and the fears around it. And Sarah Gailey over at Tor wrote that the dividing line between a protagonist and a villainess typically ends up that the villainess actually gets what she's been working for, meaning power. And, you know, still what we've been talking about is that what makes the villainess a villainess is that she's still striving for more. She's still striving for more power um, typically over the protagonist or the heroine. And Gailey writes, somewhere in there, they stop caring about what other people think and they get what they want and they turn it into cautionary tales. Something bad is waiting for the woman who goes that way. We believe it and we repeat it. I mean, we're basically trained through... Everything from folk tales to being read stories as we're growing up to watching movies now as grown ups trying to catch up on '90s pop culture, we're told that women with power are to be we're we're to be suspicious of them. Well,
0: and that up until recently, I do think the narrative is changing. Um, in part because of major successes like Frozen. Um, but for so long, the underlying message was that really the only honorable aim for a woman would be to find her Prince Charming.
1: Yes, to be quiet and sweet and modestly dressed and wait for the hero to come save you in the tower. Yeah, be the damsel in distress. Yeah, rather than doing it for yourself, like Maleficent with a headdress. That's right. I wonder if I could start wearing a headdress. Listen, you can. The
0: only thing stopping you. Is what a- getting getting a headdress? <laughs>
1: <laughs> you're right. Maybe I could just get like a fascinator. You know, maybe. Oh, s- you know Holly from stuff you miss in history class can hook you up. I know, but I just always wear a t-shirt and jeans. Would it
0: be weird? Maybe if it's. Uh, it like- would be like your flair. You know, you're, you're <laughs> like how uh, pickup artists are encouraged to always like wear something that will spark conversation. So yours can be a fascinator. I think I have killed this idea for you
1: now. <laughs> Yeah, also my soul, that's fine. I'm turning into a villainess as we speak.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But because of all of these rich layers and convention defiance that these villainesses tend to exhibit, a lot of people are calling for more of them and more fleshed
1: out, more interesting female villains. Like, give us more. Yeah, I know. I mean, I feel like we typically have been so starved for... For women who don't fall into stereotypical save the damsel in distress categories, that of course we would be excited to see women in these crazy villainess roles. I mean, I would argue that like maybe we should just get more three dimensional women characters in general rather than having them need to be Amazing Amy from Gone Girl.
0: Well, and one thing we haven't mentioned that we absolutely need to highlight is how Arguably nowhere else in mainstream cinema, big screen, small screen, do you so reliably see any sort of body diversity like you do with villainesses? Now, of course, if they are the more sexualized catsuit wearing ones, they're going to look, you know, like supermodels they are going to look like Halle Berry. But... When you think about the Sanderson sisters and Ursula, you know, you do have fuller figured women in there. Now, of course, it also says something Mm -hmm. about the fact that they are deviating from, you know, that uh, thin ideal. And that also says a lot about our fat phobic society. For sure. But that's also a convincing argument. To see more of them and to also have them be more three-dimensional.
1: Yes, yes. Because as we've clearly been talking about, even though the Sanderson sisters are villains and they're evil, we love them. I love those women, even though, you know, all your faves are problematic. Um And Kelsey McKinney over at Vox says, yeah, Maybe. Um, she argues that, yes, male villains have tended to get the juicier, more complex roles with fleshed out backstories and rich motivations. Um, possibly, she says, because we love the bad boys. We love complicated, difficult, evil genius men. Uh, she does point out, by the way, that whole entire books have been dedicated to pop culture's difficult men. I feel like there's one that has Tony Soprano in the title.
0: Well, you do have the whole Wicked series and how Incredibly successful that's been. That's true. Which is all focused on uh the witches
1: the and Wizard of Oz. Um yeah, and she uh McKinney goes back through our pop culture villainous history and says that yeah, I mean they're great and they're fabulous. Um, but they have tended to be like Maleficent, a little bit flatter. Uh they tend to be used as plot devices, um, like she says the original Maleficent and um, the Wicked Witch of the West, who, yes, she has the motivation to avenge her sister's death, but is really just kind of shrieking and vengeful on screen before she melts. Um, or she points out Nurse Ratched in One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest, who's evil, but she has no real backstory. OK,
0: also, w-
1: I had totally forgotten, even though I've read the book
0: and seen the film in One of the Cuckoo's Nest, Nurse Ratchet ends up getting hers at the end in the most horrifying way. Like, yes, she is pure evil and she treats patients in this psychiatric ward terribly. Um, but her comeuppance is like very close to sexual assault. So toward the end of the film, Randall, who's played by Jack Nicholson, um, ends up getting in a brawl <laughs> with Nurse Ratchet, and he rips her uniform. And I can't remember if it's like more graphic in the book, but he, yeah, like tears her clothes off. And it's just it's very violent. And while, OK, she's she's horrible, um Female villains having their comeuppance be sexual violence is uh, not cool. Like that—that no. that says a lot about just like an outright hatred for women across the board
1: well to me but I mean I think that that ties in and meshes perfectly with all of those theories about femininity and sexuality being deceitful and a disguise used to tempt the helpless pure man well and and nurse Ratchet is such the opposite
0: of the stereotypical like nurturing mm-hmm. perhaps kind of sexy nurse and also the fight between them is precipitated by uh Randall like sneaking two women into to the hospital. Um, so anyway, I, I had I had kind of blocked that out. I think until mm-hmm. uh, I started reading for this episode. Because at first I was like, Oh yeah, Nurse Ratched, she's awful. And then I was
1: like, Oh wait, but then then at the end things get very very uncomfortable and not okay. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think, you know, a lot of what you were talking about with body representation and, you know, just having women who look different and speak differently and act differently than the traditional heroine on screen. I think a lot of that goes to just underrepresentation of women in general Um and how we do tend to with the way that women are represented on screen it is so easy still to fall back on tropes, to punish women for their sexuality or or breaking gender norms. And uh, this was also coming from McKinney's Vox piece. Uh, she says that male characters outnumber female characters three to one in family films, so like a Disney movie. And 41% of male TV characters are shown on the job in comparison to just 28% of female characters. So, Women either aren't there or when they are there, they're not shown in positions of power or seeking power. But uh, some would argue that it's definitely getting better, not
0: necessarily because we're seeing um, more three-dimensional maleficence everywhere,
1: but because of the rise of the female anti-hero. Oh, my God. My favorite anti-hero right now is Phoebe Waller-Bridge on Fleabag. Oh, you and me both, girl. Oh, I binge watched. There's six episodes on Amazon. I binge watched it. I I belly laughed the entire time I was watching that. And at the end, the last episode, I was alternating between laughing and sobbing like a crazy person. It was such a good show. She is such an amazing character. I'm a little obsessed. And I just saw an article. Where was it? Was it on Refinery? I just saw an article about what her lipstick shade is on that TV show.
0: Such a good lip shade. Oh, yeah. She's wearing the statement lip. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I would also like to give a shout out to Sharon Horgan, who stars in Catastrophe. Um, and she's also the showrunner of Sarah Jessica Parker's new HBO show, Divorce, which eh, I'm not loving. But uh, I love Sharon Horgan. She's uh, she's hilarious. I mean, if you can share the screen with Rob Delaney and uh, hold your own. Oh, it's just amazing. And their chemistry is fantastic. And she is flawed and three-dimensional and wonderful.
1: Well and that you said something that's so key and it's flawed. And whether you're a villain or an antihero, and typically if it's not a fairy tale, antihero equates to just regular woman uh with flaws and bumps and bruises and all. But um McKinney writes about how when you don't let women be either the villain or just the flawed antihero that ties into ideas about benevolent sexism that, like, make sure if we're going to have a heroine, she's going to be upstanding and, you know, pure and innocent and in need of help. You know, we can't. We can't let the woman hero have flaws and potentially be angry. Well, and that's why Jessica Jones is
0: such a refreshing change from all of that, too. Yeah. Although still, all of the people that we've been naming so
1: far, white. Yeah. So we've still got catching up to do. Well, and let me tell you, so I noticed this as I was, you know, Pulling notes out of all of these sources that we read. And I was like, where are the black women? Where are the Asian women? Like, and so I, I did some searches on comic book sites, but listeners, I need your help because I am not a comic book person. And so I was specifically Googling, for instance, black comic book supervillains. And I came across a couple of names, but when I tried to search for them elsewhere, like, they either weren't true villains or I couldn't find more and better fleshed out info. Well, on
0: TV, though, we do have women of color being antiheroes. You've got Cookie mm-hmm. on Empire and you have Annalise Keating in How to Get Away with Murder. There are times for sure when you could argue that Olivia Pope mm-hmm. is
1: an antihero. Is the show Gotham still on? Because Jada Pinkett Smith played Fish Mooney on that show. And yeah. That's a villain. I don't know if Gotham's still on though. Uh
0: I'm I'm not sure. I've never watched it. It's not my cup of tea.
1: But I know I know some people love it. Gotham watchers. Um fill us in. But okay, Kristen, um I forgot to mention you you know, when you talked about Nurse Ratchet being punished in almost a sexual assault style way. Um that's one theory that Dan Wall over at the Mary Sue in June twenty thirteen talked about that there are issues when it comes to screenwriters grappling with how to defeat a villain and that villain is a woman because typically when you've got a villain, the the bad guy and the good guy fighting, it's fighting and it's bloody and it's violent and it can be scary and awful and the, and the bad guy ends up dying or whatever. Um, And so Dan wall is like, I just wonder if screenwriters are nervous about having some big epic final scene battle between a man and a woman and, and his thing, I know Kristen shaking her head, Wall's thing that he argues is like, if that really is what it is, because that's just a theory that he's wondering about. Just write, write better stories that don't have to involve punishing Nurse Ratchet by taking her clothes off or whatever. Yeah,
0: there are all uh, other forms of confrontation that might not necessarily involve violence. A so yeah, be more creative. Also, uh, talk to Joss Whedon because yeah, he made Buffy the Vampire Slayer. If he can make a seven-season Hit show where Buffy is getting beaten up sometimes. I mean, granted, yeah. of she's defending herself, but like when early in uh what is it in the second season, when spoiler alert she and Angel fight, it is harrowing to watch um and same with Jessica Jones, where like she's fighting um and it can be difficult to watch but there's a difference between scenes of women fighting and depictions of violence
1: against women yes. yes which
0: also going back to casino right quick uh oh my god um there's a little bit of that in there which is i just don't i i don't have the stomach for it anymore my threshold is so low for that i can't
1: so i mean we need better villains We need people to write better villains, but we also just need people to write better women. Right. Well, and
0: something really telling about uh, some of the shows that we've been talking about recently with, say, Scandal, How to Get Away with Murder. um, You have a woman of color who's a showrunner. You've got Shonda Rhimes. With uh, Jessica Jones, you have also a woman showrunner. And uh, they just announced for season two every single episode will be directed by a woman. Like, this is why... Diversity is not just a buzzword, that it matters. And same thing uh, for uh, Black Panther and Ta-Nehisi Coates coming in and taking that over and completely reimagining that world with a black superhero at the center.
1: Yeah, because maybe now we can get more stories that reflect richer inner lives, but also don't just fall back on tropes about... Woman as sexy equals bad and dangerous. Woman as ambitious equals dangerous. A woman as anything over
0: size two, bad. Yeah. And over the age of what, like 25? Yeah. <laughs> Which means that you and I are just old hags. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, who are your favorite villains, listeners, were there any that we didn't mention? I'm sure there are who you were hoping that we would cover, but we didn't. Uh, let us know. Help us fill in our our villainous canon. And we'd love to know all of your thoughts. We know so many of you are pop culture junkies. So give us all of your insights. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you when we come right back.
1: From a quick break. And now back to the show. We have some letters here about a woman who is decidedly a hero. Uh, I have a letter here from Polly in response to our Shirley Chisholm episode. She says The first I heard of Shirley Chisholm was on a trip to New York where I wandered into a Brooklyn deli alone and was graced to sit with a sweet older fellow. While I devoured my pastrami, he told me how he'd worked right beside the late, great, unbossed and unbought Chisholm in her campaigns. That man had the twinkliest twinkle in his eye as he taught me about her. Flash forward a year, and I'm a field organizer for Denise Juno to take Montana's sole seat in the House of Representatives, who I noticed you gave a shout out to on your Facebook page. What's so special about her potential nomination comes not only from the fact that she's a two term state superintendent who radically lifted graduation rates on reservations or that she would be the first American Indian and not to mention lesbian woman elected to Congress, but that she'd be taking the seat on the 100th anniversary of the first woman ever being elected to the House of Representatives. And that's right, it was Montana who voted Jeanette Rankin into office in 1916 before women even won the right to vote nationally. Montana has not sent a woman to Congress in a 100 years, and it's about time. I seriously could not get through the hours of canvassing all over my city without listening to Sminty between the doors I knock on. I always enjoy pressing play on my phone after suffering thinly-veiled racist, sexist, homophobic reasons that a person at the door won't vote for Denise Juneau. I just love skipping past the men mowing their lawns as the two of you take a nuanced, intersectional look at something or another. I've stopped turning down the volume. When I pass these men, Trump sign in the yard, be damned. I'll end my letter with a current zeitgeisty quote from Jeanette Rankin, our first ever congresswoman. If I had my life to live over, I would do it all again. But this time I would be nastier. And that, my friends, is what we call a good omen for Hillary's nomination. All my best, Polly. Oh, (laughs) I love that quote. I want that cross-stitched. I bet it's already on Etsy. (laughs) It's got to be. Okay,
0: I have a letter here from Leslie, also about Shirley Chisholm. And Leslie writes, I'm not sure if you all know about this, but Shirley is one of the few women who have an official portrait in the U.S. Capitol Similarly to uh, fellow badass congresswoman Jeanette Rankin from Montana, Chisholm's portrait is extremely unique. Not only does it depict her standing in front of the White House in a fabulously loud printed dress, but it's painted in such a beautiful, vivid color that it demands attention. I used to be a congressional intern and would always make sure to point out the portrait on tours that I would give to constituents outlining her importance in political history, not only as a woman, but a woman of color, usually concluding that she was, quote, an overall awesome lady. Oh, Caroline, we got to take a field trip now. Yeah, that portrait, P.S., is incredible. I want to see it. I love it. In in person. Yes, me too. Oh, uh, listeners, thank you so much for your delightful letters that charm us every day. MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com is where you can send them, and for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources, so you can learn even more about villains. Head on over to stuffmomnevertoldyou.com. Never Told For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.